Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome, it's Indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Richie. Good to be with you. We got a lot of stories to cover today. Breaking down news of the day, my contributor, attorney at law and legal analyst, Dina Saeed Dahl. And in my bullpen, the debate segment is with Jeff Charles, host of Fresh Perspective with Jeff Charles. That's a podcast. He wants to talk about left leaning policies versus right leaning policies and how they impact minority groups in the United States of America should be an interesting debate. First story of the day, a neighborhood in Michigan finally will allow black people to move in. Ann Arbor, yeah, you guessed it. Okay, there's a racial covenant in Ann Arbor, which means if you are not white, you cannot move in. That was actually on the deed, okay? So let me give you background to the story. A racial covenant in an Ann Arbor neighborhood deed was finally repealed by civil rights members and community groups. The restrictive covenant existed since 1947. Let's put up a picture of the community, okay? Now, you may be thinking, wow, doc, that seems really, really unnecessary, right? And maybe this is just a one off. Let's put up the map. You see in the county, all of those sections that you see that are orange actually have racial restrictive covenants for their communities. Isn't that something? Ann Arbor's Hannah neighborhood had an illegal whites only policy that existed in the subdivisions deed. Now, here's why this is important. It was in the deed of the subdivision. The subdivision dates back to the 1940s. They did not bother to change it, to update it. Other movements have attempted to, it failed this time, it was successful. Now, here's why we talk about systemic and structural racism. This is by design, this was not by some organic thing that happened. This was literally somebody with a mind to actually discriminate against black people. And they wrote it in a policy and it was adopted as bylaws and it was coordinated with their charter and it was implemented in their culture. It was by design. And the only way you can unravel something that exists by design is to intentionally destroy the design. You can't wait for something that has been designed to simply break down. You must intentionally deconstruct the construction. And that's why you see this movement happening with Ann Arbor. All right, story gets deeper. Um, 
No different than there being a sign in the entrance to the subdivision, which says whites only, said Michael Steinberg, the director of the Civil Rights Litigation Committee. Neighbors joined members of the University of Michigan's Civil Rights Litigation Committee to repeal the racist policy. The majority signed it and overturned it, okay? It's time that we examine our past, examine how past practices have shaped our community and continue to shape our community and have impacted our residents, said Erica Briggs and Ann Arbor City Council member. Well, well, you don't say Ann, I'm glad you all are on the right side of this issue in 2020 freaking two. Good for you, Ann Arbor community. I want you to think about the systemic issues that have resulted in this particular policy and policies like it. They discriminated against black folks from being able to move into that community who were qualified by way of median income, etc. They said, oh, we don't care, you're black, we don't want you here. How do you think that shaped the population? How do you think it shaped the community? How do you think it shaped the politics? How do you think the politics then shaped the policies? How do you think those policies then shaped outcomes? See how it's all connected, every bit of it. Um, I'm happy that we finally made this change. I'm excited to see us kick this off for our community. Briggs said, I hope by the end of 2022 that we can see these restrictive covenants are gone across our city because they have many more as I just demonstrated. Uh, we see this as an opportunity for neighborhoods to really affirm their values and to communicate that we are reckoning with this history. We're not erasing it, we are affirmatively stating all are welcome, said Nina Gerdes, a University of Michigan student attorney. The civil rights and community groups are continuing to work on repealing racial covenants in other Michigan neighborhoods too. Let me take you back to 1948. Shelley versus Kramer in 1948 US Supreme Court case held that restrictive covenants in real property deeds, which prohibited the sale of property to non-Caucasians, they said it's unconstitutional. That it violated the equal protection provision of the 14th Amendment. Now here's one of those instances where there's a policy, the Supreme Court ruling, let's call that a policy. That policy should have been universally adopted by every covenant community agreement in the United States of America is called reciprocation. But you see culture ate that policy alive. See how that works? Culture eats policy in a day of the week. The actual implementation of fairness may not be reflective of what's on paper. Attorney, what are your thoughts on this? You know, I agree. So this was left in the covenants, even though it became illegal after that Supreme Court decision. It became unenforceable. So I think here, what I see, what really matters, is that words matter, right? We wouldn't be doing this. You wouldn't be doing this if what we say, how we communicate, doesn't matter. So when these became illegal in 1948. A year or two after this was even adopted, the subdivision didn't change their language. And I'm sure many subdivisions around the country, you highlighted a bunch of Michigan, but this was 
nationwide didn't change their language. And so they were still communicating that they wanted whites only. And that's what's so important, even though it became unenforceable, they left it on their books. And that's a very strong message. People understand you know, what they want. It's so good they are taking this off, even if it's been unenforceable for years, because it's also now a form of education for people to realize, hey, this was probably a really great new subdivision that at the time was limited to whites only. This is how progress was limited in our country. And it's good for people to know if they don't know how this happened. Yeah, it was a racist subdivision created by a racist architect who said, okay, if you're racist, you can move here because our covenant says black people cannot. Now, here's the other part. This is equivalent to, let's say a restaurant still having a whites only sign. We know that's not legally enforceable, but technically they can put up a sign that says that and be covered under their freedom of speech and expression as long as it is not enforced. So imagine being a black person walking up to a restaurant that still has a whites only sign. And they say, "Oh no, we just keep that around because that was one of the first signs we had when we established this store. See, it still shapes the culture of who goes to that restaurant if you do things like that. Proud Boys leader decided to punch a black woman and call her the N-word, this coward is here. Here it is. He's trash, let's put up his picture. I got some background to this fella. All right, um, his name, let me first start here. His name is Andrew Walls, but he's a leader of the far right group, the Proud Boys. Now we've talked about the Proud Boys many times on this program. Far right, deep connections to white supremacists. We've talked about this. He assaulted a black woman on Sunday. This was caught on the video. He was shouting racial slurs and then decided to punch the woman in the face. So here's how we're gonna do this. Let me go ahead and explain to you who he is first. He's 26 years of age, Andrew Walls was reportedly drunk outside of an Ohio bar. And was seen scuffling with other patrons while spewing racial slurs. So what you got on camera was not the full extent of what he did. At one point, his victim, a 23 year old Cameron Morgan passed by with a friend when she heard walls and others around him screaming F N words, okay? She's just walking by. Walls points his finger at Morgan, Miss Morgan, calls her the N word and then says B word, shut your mouth and punches her directly in the face. According to Morgan's father, Walls also dragged her into the street by her hair, okay? This man was charged with possessing a firearm, all of that. He had a firearm while intoxicated and assault. A warrant was issued for his arrest. Walls turned himself in on Sunday evening. Morgan's injuries may lead to his assault charge being upgraded to a felony. Now I want you to remember, you just saw a felony in front of you. That was, that was a felony act. 
They decided to charge him with a misdemeanor, okay? They may charge him with a felony. They may upgrade the charges. He could also be charged with ethnic intimidation. He has not been charged with that. That is a law that exists in that state. He has not been charged with that yet. This is not the first time we have seen walls on the news. Here's him in 2019, let's put it up, okay? Andrew Walls, vice president of the Canton chapter of the Proud Boys set up a display and talked to students before Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke rally came to that state on that campus. He was talking to students, okay? He had an open carry display, Kent State campus, September 2019. This was a counter rally, so now, you know, the Proud Boys will tell you in their literature that they are not a racist organization. They will tell you that they are not white supremacists. And then they will point to the handful of people of color who are actually part of the organization in order to provide protection and cover for their white supremacists and white nationalist ideas. But when things like this happen with their members, the Proud Boys, they do not release a statement saying we denounce what this person said. They don't come out, hold a press conference and say they denounce the language of one of their leaders. They provide cover for them, they protect them. See, it's real simple. The people who are recruited who happen to be people of color inside of the Proud Boys organization, not only are you foolish, you're a pawn and they're using you to protect their white supremacist ideology, you know exactly who you are. Attorney, why was this charged as a misdemeanor offense? Yeah, it's sometimes prosecutors do this just to get something to stick, just to start the process, and they're still building their case, they're still collecting their facts. So I do imagine, well, for sure, an ethnic intimidation charge. I don't sure. know why that wasn't automatically included because the facts are so obvious. The felony, the aggravated battery felony, you know, maybe him kind of bringing her into the street. You know, that depends on her injuries. I could see that being elevated too, and maybe that was why they kind of held off. I mean, it's so disgusting. Thank goodness this was on film. I think it was her father that filmed this, that they were able to see. And yeah, as you say, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine anybody not realizing what the Proud Boys are. They show by their actions and their words all the time yeah. how their racism. And Ms. Dahl, I want to say this about charges. All right, I'm from a place called Glenwood Road. Routinely, I saw members of my community being arrested and every single charge they can imagine were allocated to them. They didn't say, well, let's charge based on what can stick and maybe we upgrade later. They charge based on what can't stick, what doesn't fit the crime so that you can negotiate and plead down later and they get a win under their belt. Why is it that we see something very different in cases like this compared to communities that I'm from where the exact opposite happens. I mean, we've spoken a little bit about um, public defenders yeah. in our in our discussions, and I think that goes a little bit about that. And as you say, um, sometimes people realizing that they are not going to get support from their community. You know, prosecutors realizing, yes, charging this white man as racist as he, as he is, they're going to get more a flack if they overcharge him than maybe somebody from color who doesn't have support, who isn't going to have a very good lawyer, who's going to be easier to plead down. 
as you said, this is systemic and yeah. these issues um, absolutely play a role into what the prosecutors, I mean, it's their own um, professional prestige that they, they care about at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think there's there's this presumption, as you said, that if there's a black individual, that person does not come with the same level of community support as let's say a person connected to the Proud Boys. So you already know the person with the Proud Boys, you got community support, even though it's a bunch of racist individuals. You got community support, you got a lot of scrutiny, and you have the potential of them raising a lot of money to defend the case. The problem with that is that is based on a racial dynamic rather than what the person has actually done, right? So it's not fair in the legal context to lightly charge an individual because you are afraid of their racist friends. All right, speaking of racism. There's racism in the Ukraine. There are racist Ukrainians. So let me do it this way because I think people will blur the lines. I'm anti-war, but as my grandmother would say, I got plenty of walking around sense. What Putin is doing in Ukraine is wrong, it's morally wrong. What some Ukrainians are doing to black people inside of their country is wrong as well and racist as hell. Now, reporters who are reporting on this are also showing their extreme racism in how they contextualize European countries. And I'm going to break all of this down in real time. Let me take you to the first video. Now with the Russians marching in, it's changed the calculus entirely. Tens of thousands of people have tried to flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. So it's partly human nature, but they are not in denial. Me, I'm sorry, it's very emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed, children being killed every day with Putin's missiles and his helicopters and his rockets. And so of course I, I understand and respect the emotion. What you are outlining there is this tension between longer term efforts to apply pressure to Vladimir Putin, such as financial sanctions, and the very immediate military threat which you're experiencing. Just to put it bluntly, these are not refugees from Syria. These are refugees from uh, neighboring Ukraine. And that, quite frankly, is part of it. These are um, Christians, they're white, they're, um, they're very similar to people, many people who live in the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. This is Europe. These are good Christian white people. I mean, they're civilized, as the first reporter said. It's not like uh, Morocco. These aren't refugees from Syria. They should be ashamed of themselves. They are human beings. Bias, prejudice, systemic racism on display in international journalism, and you just saw it. Remember, one lady said, they're white Christians. As if somehow their lives, because they happen to be white or belong to a particular religious category, 
their lives are much more sophisticated and valuable than those who are not. Now, they may not see it that way because their bias could likely be implicit. I don't give a damn which one it is. The impact of it is the same. The impact of hyper aggressive bias and implicit bias is the same for the person on the other side of the bias. Those were just a few clips. Let me give you some more background, all right? Cities under siege across the Ukraine are home to tens and thousands of African students studying medicine, engineering, and military affairs. Morocco, Nigeria, and Egypt are among the top 10 countries with foreign students in Ukraine. Together supplying over 16,000 students, according to the education ministry. Thousands of Indian students are also trying to flee. What was meant to be a cheaper alternative to studying in Western Europe or the United States has turned overnight into a war zone as Russian tanks, planes, and ships launched the biggest European invasion of another nation since World War II. With flights grounded, African governments thousands of miles away are struggling to support their students. The students Reuters spoke to said they have had no help from home. I'm gonna give you more to this. Now, we have video, we have seen images of Ukrainians stopping black travelers from getting on trains, stopping their movement in favor of whites. We have seen this. We have also seen the Twitter feeds of individuals who are giving us updates as they come. This is racist. Now, here's what's going to happen. You see, Putin is well aware that the international community is against what he's doing, by and large, okay? Obviously, there's some exception. He's going to use this against Ukraine, and it will continue to be a public relations nightmare, it's a war inside of a war. The race dynamic or the racial injustice is the war that has already been there before this war started because racism is a global dynamic, not simply contextualized through the American experience. And if the leadership of Ukraine, if they don't step up and denounce what Ukrainians are doing, You will see other nations, especially those connected to Africa, they will start not supporting the Ukraine fight against Russia. That will happen. There's more. Um, Here are some stories shared across Twitter. Uh, Stephanie Haggerty said uh, a Nigerian medical student at Poland-Ukraine border told me she has been waiting seven hours to cross. She says border guards are stopping black people and sending them them to the back of the queue saying they have to let Ukrainians through first. Dr. Alakija, black Africans are being treated with racism and contempt in Ukraine and Poland. We cannot ask African nations to stand in solidarity with them if they do not display basic respect for us even in a time of war, ignored in a pandemic and left to die in a war, unacceptable. Now let's get back to some of the coverage, all right? The racist coverage that you just saw. CBS News senior foreign correspondent 
Charlie D. I gotta apologize Saturday saying for suggesting the war in Ukraine is particularly shocking because the country is relatively civilized and European compared to Iraq and Afghanistan. His characterization was among a flurry of similar commentary in the media that critics have slammed as racist and in some cases historically inaccurate. So let me tell you one case where it's historically inaccurate. My first PhD finished in 2016 talks about the warfare that has been waged across this globe in the name of religion. The number one colonizers and the number one catalyst for warfare are white people, white nations. That's not my opinion, that is a fact. And you can find all of my research and go to Google Scholars, Amazon is all published, all right? So, so that's one inaccuracy for sure, that somehow white nations are just too civilized for warfare. Uh, D. Agata responded to the criticism during a Saturday report saying, and I quote, I spoke in a way that I regret. And for that, I'm sorry. He said what he'd been trying to convey was that Ukraine had not seen war on this scale in recent years compared to conflicts he'd covered in other parts of the world. You can do that without using tropes, all right? Um, this is extreme. There are so many more examples. Ms. Dahl, okay, when you heard this kind of reporting, when you saw it, I know this had to hit you too. What are your thoughts about it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, my father's family is from the Middle East and hearing First of all, the reason why there's decades of war there is because we started that war. And there, her description, it's, it was heartbreaking that the Syrian refugees were turned away in Europe after what they were going through. And her description of them was just wrong. They were actually highly educated in Syria. And you know, so we mischaracterize the Middle East over and over and over. and. And in terms of global racism, I think you're absolutely right. I've always thought that actually. I think in some ways, it, we just talk about it more here. We have freedom of speech, we have democracy, and we're able to have these conversations. But perhaps we have less racism here mm. than in other places. And so I'm glad that you're bringing this up. And it's, it is during terms of war that the most vulnerable of any community gets impacted the most. So it's really, uh, such a bad situation that they're in, and I'm really so sorry for that. We stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are being discriminated against. We stand up for historically marginalized communities. We make absolutely no ambiguity about that. I also must echo the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he stood against the Vietnam War. And he said, when America is at war, it has a way of desensitizing those in the country. Because the policies that we're fighting for take a back burner during wartime. So I want everyone to be reminded we have a war right here in America that we're fighting on the social front every day. Don't lose focus of that as well. We got more on the other side. It's indisputable. Stick and stay. Welcome back to Indisputable. We got a lot of show left. Let's get to it. Before I read the comments, let me remind everyone. Uh, J.R. Jackson, the watch list, great show. Make sure you check it out live, all right? Live weekdays, 12 p.m. Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Find out stories you need to be paying attention to. 
in news, politics, culture, current events, sports, and more. Marjorie Taylor Greene, United States Congresswoman, was the keynote at a white nationalist rally. Here's a video. And now they're going on about Russia and Vladimir Putin is Hitler. And they say that's not a good thing. And can we give a round of applause for Russia? Absolutely, absolutely. We are honored, we are humbled and excited to welcome to the stage right now for our first speech. And we'd love to get to know her much better. I think this is going to be the beginning of something great. The representative from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay, she's coming. I got more video. Now remember uh, Fuentes, who is one of their leaders, Nick Fuentes, a proud white nationalist, makes absolutely no bones about it whatsoever. He introduces Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, right before what do they do? They engage in a go Putin, they are celebrating Russia. Uh, they are dissing Democrats, okay? That happened a little before his introduction. But here it comes again, this is Marjorie Taylor Greene at the pro Putin, pro Russia, pro-white nationalist rally. Many of you in this room knows exactly what that feels like because you know what it's like to be canceled. And that's why I'm here to talk to you tonight. I don't believe anyone should be canceled. I don't believe in, I don't believe in separating people and identities. I don't believe in separating people and classes, but that's what the Democrats believe in because that's what Marxism is. The irony, I don't believe in separating people, but that's what Democrats do. You realize you're separating people and you're talking in front of a white separatist organization. That's what they believe in, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay, I got background. What state do you think this happened in? You guessed it first time, Florida. Uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke at a white nationalist conference in Florida Friday evening. Greene, a QAnon conspiracy um, theorist and an anti-trans Republican, was the surprise speaker at the third annual America First political action conference in Orlando, organized by white nationalist figurehead Nick Fuentes. That's the guy you saw introducing Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now here's the thing, they're not hiding it anymore. Be very clear about where we are now. They are not hiding the fact that they are white supremacists any longer. They are now out in the open. They have a champion, Donald J. Trump. Donald J. Trump has created other champions of white supremacy. It gets deeper. Fuentes an anti-Semite and racist who attended the deadly 2017 um, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, remember that? And who was recently subpoenaed for his involvement in the January 6th terrorist attack against the United States uh, Capitol, excitedly introduced the Congresswoman as the featured speaker inside of the Marriott Orlando World Center, according to a live stream of the event. Now here's why I pause and say the Marriott should be ashamed of themselves, okay? I'm giving the Marriott about a day or two to make a response and then we'll do a follow up. 
But the Marriott at this point has to know this is what happened on your watch. There's more. In her speech, Green referred to the assembled crowd, among them prominent right wing extremists who have been photographed giving the Nazi salute and reciting the infamous 14 words, a white supremacist slogan as canceled Americans. Well, damn it, if you're racist, you should be canceled. That was the whole movement of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now remember, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene will go around quoting the words of Dr. King. Dr. King literally died, was killed, was assassinated for trying to cancel racist ass white people and those that supported them. It was assassinated for that. And now Marjorie Taylor Greene, who quotes Dr. King on a regular basis, is now keynoting one of their conferences. Where are the Republicans? Where's the leadership of the conservative movement? Hell, where are black conservatives at? Get a backbone, damn it. You don't have to agree with me or anyone else politically. But if you all can't stand up, I'm talking specifically to black Republicans right now. If you all can't stand up to this, you're worthless, you're cowards. This woman is keynoting a white nationalist rally. You ain't invited, black conservative. You can walk up in there. There's more. She said, you've been handed the responsibility to fight for our constitution and stand for our freedoms and stop the Democrats, as if Democrats are not Americans, who are the communist party of the United States of America. This is called radicalization, okay? She wants them to look at Democrats, left-leaning individuals, liberals, progressives as less than human. Because if you can do that, the same ideology was set in that existed during the era of slavery. You know why those white slave masters could still go to church and pray to a God? Because they taught that black people were not actually human beings and they had no moral dynamic connected to them as it related to the treatment of black folk because they weren't actually human according to their doctrine. As he began, I'm talking about Trump now, former President Trump. After she keynoted this white supremacist rally, former President Donald Trump gave her a shout out during his speech the next day. Where was he at as he began a rambling speech at the 2022 Conservative Political Action Conference? Where? Orlando, Florida. I mean, damn, they, they got the same contract, obviously. Trump included Green in a list of Republicans he highlighted. He also included Matt Gates and the MyPillow CEO, Mike Lindell. You know, if you're decent, you stand up to this. If you're decent, all right, I know I called out black Republicans in particular, there's a reason for that. But if you are a decent individual, you call this madness out and you call it out quickly. Ms. Dahl, thoughts? The fact that Trump highlighted her the next day shows why she did it, power. Yep. And it's why a lot of the Republicans are not speaking out because they are worried about their own power. And let's remind them, they are public servants. And the vast majority of the public finds this awful, 
and does not agree with this. And there are too many people in that we are voting in that only care about whether or not they're gonna get reelected, whether or not Kevin McCarthy is not calling her out because he just wants to be Speaker of the House if they regain the House. You know, We have to somehow elect people who are in it for service rather than their own good. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. And just really quickly to your point about the Marriott, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to hold a rally in Orange County, California, and they couldn't find a venue. Venue after venue canceled them and they ended up having to do something small outdoors. I remember that. Yes, you're absolutely right. The Marriott has a responsibility here. Any corporation who's willing to give white nationalists a stage is participating in it. That's right, and the Marriott cannot claim that somehow they are bound by policy and rules. They are a private company, they have the right to refuse contractual service. They do not have to allow anybody upon their property. All right, we got more on the other side, it's indisputable, stick and stay. Very sad story, an autistic child was beaten in front of administrators at a school and they did nothing to help him. Let's put up his picture, okay? He's 11 years old, he has nonverbal autism, he does not speak. He was beaten up by a fellow student as school staffers stood watched and did nothing, we got video. His name is Sekai. The staffers were teacher aides at Jones Middle School in Humble, Texas. They are no longer employed at the school according to the district. They should be arrested according to me. The intellectual capacity of this young man is of a four or five year old based on his spectrum, okay? He has already missed multiple days of school due to the attack, is being evaluated by medical professionals. Let me show you one of the screenshots of the fight. This happened on January 25th. These are stills from the video footage. It was obtained by KHOU11. Sakai is in the blue shirt and the student attacking him is in the gray, okay? Sakai was thrown to the floor by a much larger special needs student. After Sakai accidentally bumped into the student while the students were leaving PE. The focus is not the student. The student repeatedly kicked him and Sakai crawled along the floor. At least one adult can be seen in the video Watching the fight and letting it happen. Let's go to the next graphic. Okay. After Sakai got up, the student punches him to the floor again. There's an adult, a member of the faculty who does nothing. At one point, the staffer taps the student on the shoulder. But the child continues to kick Sakai without the adult ever intervening. The only reason why this story has come to light is because the grandmother, Vita Cavett, decided to make the video public. Let's show a picture of grandmother, okay? She has full custody of this young man. 
because his parents died. She took custody of her grandson following the passing of his parents when he was a baby. She spoke to the local news affiliate and said, and I quote, those adults in that video stood there. They did not attempt to help my child get up off the ground. They did not offer him any assistance. They didn't even check to see if he was injured. Ms. Cavett says she simply could not pull Sakai out of the school because it would be too disruptive. So instead, felt it was time for those who failed to protect him to go. They serve no purpose here. They serve no purpose here. They cannot do their job, according to the grandmother. Kevin and advocates called on the Aldine Independent School District to fire the aides. How can other special needs mothers send their children back to this school knowing the same pair of professionals are standing in the same classrooms? In a statement on Thursday, the school district announced the three aides had been let go. They said, and I quote, the district no longer employs the aides present during the incident. This incident should have never occurred. The district trains paraprofessionals in nonviolent crisis intervention techniques at the beginning of each school year and will reinforce that training during the remainder of this year. You don't have a training issue, school district, you have a cultural issue. You have more than one adult who allowed this autistic child who could not talk. Think about how evil they are. Think about how evil these paraprofessionals are. Because the child can't talk, they allowed this to happen. It was sport to them. They need to be arrested. This is not enough for me. Them being fired is not enough for me. We don't have the names of the paraprofessionals. But I was able to locate the names of the people in charge of that institution. And I'm gonna give you those names right here, okay? The principal is Lorena Shavira. The superintendent is Dr. Latanya M. Goffney, okay? Those are the people in charge. We are calling for the arrest of the faculty members, the aides who allowed this to happen. Ms. Dahl, am I out of line here? No, and in fact, I, we just saw the officers that were involved with George Floyd's death being convicted for violation right. of the civil rights for their failure to intervene. And that's what makes me think of this case, that there's some federal civil rights for their failure to intervene. It was definitely you know, in your custody and your care. This boy was definitely in their care. Children are most vulnerable and are so dependent on the adults and their school. And they clearly failed to intervene, perhaps also um, some sort of accessory to an assault charge for them standing and being complicit and not intervening as well. And I just wanted to say, you know, I enjoy doing this so show so much in part because of your capacity to empathize, Dr. Ritchie. And um, this story is incredibly sad and I'm so glad that you're bringing it to light. Thank you. School officials have arrested multiple Teachers, administrators, again, put up the mugshots. Now we just covered something like this, okay? This is in Midland, Texas. Police announced that four school administrators had been arrested for failure to report 
with intent to conceal abuse from left to right. Let me read who these individuals are. Todd Freeze, MS and US Dean of Schools of Students. US history teacher Shelby Hammer, head of school. Crystal Myers, head of middle school. And Adrian Clifton, assistant head for administration, director of admissions. Okay, their bonds were only set at $5,000 according to jail records. Now, let me tell you what they did to this particular student. Okay, the investigation is ongoing. According to the arrest affidavits obtained by News West 9, a female student under the age of 14 was reportedly sexually assaulted multiple times going back as far as September 2019. Years of abuse. The victim told an interviewer at Midland Children's Advocacy Center in February that she had been assaulted every other day for around four months while at the school. The suspect who has not been identified but appears to be a fellow student based on information within the affidavits. Uh, reportedly began touching the victim's leg when the teacher stepped out of the classroom before beginning to touch her in other places. She tried to ask for help from another student who reportedly laughed at her. After this incident, the student broke down and told a friend who then reported the incident to the Dean of Trinity, later identified as Freeze. The victim later told that person Another incident had occurred in front of cameras in the gymnasium. Now you got evidence, right? She also told Freeze she was scared of the suspect due to his difference in size compared to her. They told her they would check for the camera footage, okay? The affidavit continues to describe the multiple sexual assaults the victim faced, including him groping her and forcing her to touch him inappropriately. The victim's parents decided to contact Freeze by email. However, this person claimed to Midland Police that he did not receive any such email. The parents then went to Trinity to, to discuss it in person, who said that he had interviewed the suspect and downplayed the incident, calling it a he said, she said situation. Eventually, the parents had enough and confronted. Uh, both him and Myers, who would tell the parents they work on it, while Hammer claimed to be unaware of the incidents. Here's the cover up. This is the cover up. When COVID hit, it would provide only relief, temporary relief for the victim because the victim missed school. But after returning to school, the parents removed the victim from the school. There's more, September 2020. Hammer sent out a waiver to the victim's parents that would settle the dispute about the assaults according to the affidavits. The waiver would allow the parents to receive a portion of the tuition paid for the school year 2020 to 2021, that's called bribery. If they signed and avoided litigation or admission of liability or wrongdoing, the parents reviewed the document, hired an attorney before ultimately deciding not to take away the victim's right to speak out about her assault. Put up the picture of these monsters again, they have been arrested. Okay, now just last week in Midland, Texas, we covered another story about these five school staffers. Once again, 
private Christian academy in Texas. They are facing felony charges over accusations. They failed to notify authorities after a ninth grader was sexually assaulted by an older student at the school. Okay, where's the legislation? Where's the movement from Republicans and Democrats to create legislation around these issues inside of school buildings? Republicans still want you to think that critical race theory is the greatest evil that can happen in K through 12 education. It's not even taught. But you know what really is happening in K through 12 education? Those monsters. Are they fighting our elected officials fighting at your legislature to make sure monsters like this cannot coexist with our children? Or are they busy telling you that critical race theory is somehow the worst thing that has ever happened inside of the school system? It's a fairy tale. Ms. Doll thoughts. First of all, that 14 year old was incredibly brave to yeah. be able to go and report it. And the fact that that was her response is tragic, really. You know, I wondered why, you know, the Me Too movement did such a good job in this country of bringing these things to light. But it did not involve students at all in the Me Too movement. And I think it is. Huge. I think it's as rampant the amount of sexual assault cases, students involving teacher student, and it was completely left out of that conversation. And I think it needs to become a conversation. Again, children in these schools are vulnerable. You can't quit your school like you can quit a job, and you're not even an adult. I think that they are put in a position so much worse in terms of sexual harassment, and they face it. Students. Yep. Are facing sexual harassment, and we're we need, like you said, it's not being talked about at all. They need to create a Me Too movement just for this area of women That's right. and men. Okay, Ms. Doll, always a pleasure. Thank you for being on Indisputable. How can people follow you? Check out your work. Thank you so much for having me. They can follow me on Twitter at Dina Doll One. Don't forget about the conversation. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always indisputable.